At the time we split up, you know, there was too many other people trying to get in the group. <laughs> we could have had two I'm groups, you know, the Beatles and the Beatles' wives. <laughs> Who would have been lead vocals? Yoko. Oh, that. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Taros. The Beatles become naked. You know how hard it can be 
crucify me Caught the early plane back to London 58 guns tied in a sack The man from the press said We wish you success It's good to have the both of you back Christ, you know it ain't easy You know how hard it can be The way things are going They're gonna crucify me The way things are going They're gonna crucify me Richard, this is one of those subjects that everybody has an opinion on, and it's interesting to see how the opinion has shifted over the years. It's gone from Yoko broke up the Beatles to did she help break up the Beatles? I'm going to venture a wild guess and say you're leaning pretty heavily that Yoko facilitated this, maybe even more than helped. I see. So you're basically trying to pigeonhole me as a Yoko hater. Thank you. No, let me put it this way. I think that you are more in favor of the idea that Yoko broke up the Beatles than your love of mid-80s Paul McCartney music. You see, now you're making it tough for me, aren't you? <laughs> that, that, that was me. That was pre-planned, wasn't it? You had that one ready. It's on my idiot board. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> no, I, in all seriousness, um, just as with Paul, you know, I'm not a Paul hater and I'm not a solo Paul hater. And with Yoko... It's kind of 50-50. I do think she got a bad rap in a lot of ways. But while the Beatles breakup was happening, I don't think her addition to the equation helped in any way. No, I don't think she did anything to keep them together. Oh, God, no. No. And I, I don't think she wanted to. I don't think John wanted her to. Well, I think John definitely used her as an off ramp, basically. But then she didn't have to fit that role, right? She didn't have to play that role. She could have just as easily say, you know, I don't want to get involved with this. But she seemed more than happy to get involved with it. And then post-Beatles breakup, it seems that she didn't really help in terms of maybe with a reunion. You know, when there were some opportunities, I think she got in the way there. Well, I think there's a reason for that, too. What's the most important word in any language? Control. Uh, I think if there's one thing that I will say that uh, Yoko is obsessed with, it's control. And controlling John was part of that. So that makes sense. I mean, if there were reunions or things that came later on, that is going to wrest control away from her. And I don't think she had any interest in that, no matter how big the paycheck. Because I think she, she was somebody who stubbornly believed that you know she should be just as big a, a star and generate probably just as much profit from her musical endeavors as John was. And I, I think that's part of the reason John liked her so much. <laughs> so do you think she was aiming to bag a Beatle, basically? You know, there's this whole story that John spread that, you know, Yoko hadn't even heard of the Beatles when she met him, which I've always found ludicrous. Don't believe You know, she's in London in 66. And if you had to pay someone to make sure that another person never heard the word Beatles mentioned or anything about the Beatles, it would be almost impossible. Yeah, I don't buy that for a second. And there's that famous... Uh, 
that famous bit when uh, Paul was promoting Driving Rain, I think it was, and he's uh, on the Howard Stern show, and he recounted very delicately his version of Yoko coming to knock on the door to collect original manuscripts for John Cage. You knew Yoko first, and you passed her off to John. Yeah. She was. She claimed well, no. she didn't know who the Beatles were, but meanwhile, she knew who the Beatles were she because had met him. she met you. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, uh, I have like my version of the story. What is your version? My version is that uh, we were in London, and Yoko came around to my house, knocking on the door. Someone says, this Japanese lady outside there. I said, okay, let her in, because right. I was very that those days. Why would you let a Japanese I, lady in? I let everyone in. In those days, you know, people who came around like that, you generally, I was living on my own, so I would just I said, well, come on in and have a cup of tea, we'll have a talk. Right. So this is before Linda, you're single. Yeah. And Yoko, and Yoko knocks on the door. My recollection, the, you know, <laughs> against the allegation, no, is that she came in and she said, it's John Cage's birthday, and us artists want to collect a bunch of manuscripts to give him for his, whatever it was, 60th or something birthday. Right. And I thought immediately, I thought, I don't really want to do this. Right. I thought, but because I don't like to give away my the stuff, I like to keep that stuff where we wrote, you know, yesterday on the back of an envelope. Right. In other I, words, you don't auction that stuff off and stuff like You say, hey, I wrote this, I, I want to own it. You know, give it to my kids maybe or right. something. You it know, means so, something to you. So I wasn't that keen to give it away. But I just thought, you said, but my friend John might. Right. And that's my recollection that I then said, and he lives here, and she went to see him. Did you she get the impression not. that she was there in order to score a Beatles? I she didn't. Was it was all well above board. You're saying well that with a smile. That there was a she knew of the Beatles. <laughs> I don't know. You but know, of course, I mean, I mean I, if she I, knocked I, on your door, she knew you were a Beatle. And if she and she wanted a manuscript of right. what of. John Doe. Right, yeah. so didn't you in fact laugh at her years later when she said, I didn't know who Jean was, I don't know Beatles, I never heard. You yeah. knew that that was not true. I don't know, man. I tell you, you know, you know, live and let live. It's too, too sort of, you know, life's too short for all that stuff. You know, we've been but through But you also have that. to share, you have to call her regularly to do Beatles business, right? So you have yeah. to get along with her. Yeah, to some degree, So exactly. in fact, you said here today that Yoko in fact wanted you sexually. <laughs> and in fact, knew who the Beatles were, yeah. it would probably screw up your business dealings I'd with be her. dead meat. How Paul recalls that sounds completely believable to me. This whole notion that Yoko first hit on Paul for like a relationship, you know, like that was her yeah, first I, choice. I'm not buying that at all. Uh, you know what? I don't buy that at all. I think people, I think it's like a game of telephone. I think it's obvious. I would have even said, yeah, Yoko's hitting him up for money. Mm. And suddenly hitting him up is hitting on him. Do you know what I mean? And if one studies the history of the types of women both men were involved in, let's not forget Jenny Key. <laughs> let's not forget Mae Pang. Uh, John liked Asian women, you know, and so Paul liked blondes and redheads. Oh, yeah. I think the whole idea that Paul would have gone after Yoko, I, I don't go with that at all. But what about if Paul had responded do you think Yoko might have made a play for him on that level, just as she did with John? I think at that time, her motivations were pretty clear. She wanted to be a famous artist. You know, she was glomming on to things. So multiple times to legitimize, and, and this is coming, let me, full disclosure, I actually like a lot of Yoko's artwork, and it actually influenced me as a young artist, and that is not a lie. Had nothing to do Are with Are you John talking Lennon. about as a vocalist? Yeah. Uh, well, in my French, actually, she coached me in all of my French lessons. No, no, in, in, in all seriousness, there's a few of her plexiglass pieces. She 
she and uh, an artist named Lucas Samaras, who were kind of fellow travelers for a while in New York, um, not that they hung out or anything, but they had similar kinds of artwork. Uh, their work in plexiglass totally, like everything in plexiglass boxes and stuff. That I got all that. I was doing that for a couple of years. That was all from Yoko. I, I loved that stuff. She did something called the Eternal Time Clock where you had to put – it was like a plexiglass box or perspex, as they say, where you came from. And um, – had a clock in it with you know no only a second hand going and you had to the only way you could hear it was with stethoscope that was like welded onto the you know it's just kind of wacky 60s shit but i i thought you were gonna actually say that you were really inspired by her box of smile i liked the half wind you know that was my favorite <laughs> are, you, are you talking about two virgins now oh <laughs> no well there is there's a full wind on that but you know we'll <laughs> There's several of them in stereo, no less. But uh, but we, you know, thank God they haven't invented smell-o-vision back in 1968. But I think the pattern that I see is one of glomming on. So at this point, she has now glommed on to Cage, you know, and like to make kind of make her stuff a little bit more legitimate. And so I think she would have glommed on to the Beetle thing, and if that meant. Bag what a, a thought, eh? Can you imagine Paul and Yoko? I, no, I, I can't. Just can't. Not, not in a, not on. The only thing I can imagine less is Yoko and George. <laughs> I can't imagine this, and I can imagine this less. Oh my goodness, that sounds like that sounds like a song on Yoko's next album. <laughs> That reminds me of an English sports commentator called David Coleman. He was at yeah. Heathrow Airport when they returned from their first U.S. visit in February 64. Yeah. And he was known for what private I used to call Coleman balls. I remember him commentating an England football game, soccer game versus Cyprus. One of the footballers crossed the ball, crossed the face of the goal, and he said, the Cypriot defence knew nothing about that, and the goalkeeper <laughs> knew even less. <laughs> That's a great line, actually. I like yeah. that. Even less than nothing. So, uh, yeah, I think what happens over time is as Yoko, fairly soon after she contacts Paul McCartney, has the show going at Indica Gallery and she meets John. And I know John would tell the story later as if they fell in love that moment and that suddenly, you know, the skies opened up in the Choir of Angels. But, of course, we realize they don't seem to get together to make an album together until another 18 months later or something. Right. So. Now, she does show up in the studio in, is it September of 67, during the sessions of Fall on the Hill? Yeah. And there's photos of her. He's in a white turtleneck with an acoustic guitar, and she's sitting opposite him, never mentioned by either of them. Yeah. I th as I say, I think the story gets compressed because it's... It's kind of an awkward story that they meet. And like I say, John would like to say, this is when we met and fell in love. Oh, if that's so, why did he spend the next 18 months with Cynthia and go off to India with Cynthia and on the plane back start talking to Cynthia about having more children, all this kind of stuff that doesn't... Well, to, to be fair, I think that, it, you know, that can be the case with someone who has fallen for someone else, but then they're not sure about stepping away from the marriage. And so they keep going backwards and forwards in their own minds. Well, I think there we have a metaphor for the Beatles, isn't it? The Beatles' marriage was also something that yeah, uh, is absolutely. on the rocks from, you know, the moment or potentially on the rocks from the moment they get on that plane in San Francisco to go home. And that's a fundamental point, right? I know you're saying it within the context, quite rightly, of John prevaricating about that, that, you know, he, he can't find a way out, but he's kind of looking for a way out and then... He's in love with the Beatles. He's not in love with the Beatles. But that's where it starts, isn't it? It's the end of touring, the end of being together on the road, in hotel rooms, in theatres, in restaurants, you name it, you know, doing interviews together. 
all the stuff doing that films together, to that point. doing radio appearances and TV together. Once that stops, everything changes. I agree with you there. It may have started even earlier. I was speaking to Mark Lewison about that period at the very beginning of 1966, where, where they're really not doing anything. You know, they do a photo session in late March, I think it is, for the Butcher mm. cover. And then the same day, they do the they do a radio interview. But then really nothing until the 1st of April, where they're you know, beginning to record uh, Revolver. Isn't that what they're talking about in that series of interviews with Maureen Clee for the Evening Standard? They're talking about what they've been doing. Yeah, that was March as well. You're right. That's the other thing that sort of comes out, which, of course... Mm. Where the spaghetti hit the fan with with the religious statement, though some of the though, though those are all are interesting articles to read, and you can find them online. I would suggest everyone if you've never read those, those are quite interesting. That being said, I said to Mark, "Oh, it must have been well. What a welcome break! You know, they were supposed to make a movie in that time period. The scripts didn't work out, and you know there was nothing to fill it with." And Mark said to me something very interesting. He said, "No, they were dictating to their manager. No, you don't book anything. We need that time off." That, to me, is the sea change. You know, maybe they always told Brian this, 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 and this, though I have a hard time believing that. I believe in what Mark is saying here, though, that this is, once again, independence. Mm. This is the child uh, leaving the, you know, the baby bird leaving the nest, the child leaving home, saying, no, you know what, parent, uh, we're doing it my way, and you're not, uh, we want some time off. Screw if people don't think, screw it if people think we're slipping. We're going to go, we're tired. And I think that is where you're starting to see this individualism really step forward because they didn't all run off together for vacation. Mm. You know, people often talk about the role that Yoko filled in John's life, that he was always looking for a mother figure or a parent figure, um, that he had some of that in Brian. Now, Brian was gone. Um, You know, Cynthia, earlier in their relationship, that was on the rocks. And Maharishi was a disappointment. And so then along comes, you know, Yoko to fill the void. Do you go with that? I do. And I I also suspect, I have nothing but instinct to back this up on, is that Yoko is hanging around and hanging around and hanging around because she senses opportunity with John. You know, she it seems like it was a one and done with Paul, if it was just bagging a beetle. One and done with him, never interested in the other two. So... She senses something. Now, maybe it was the way John smiled at her at the gallery, or who knows what it could be. She senses opportunity, and she hangs around until the opportunity flowers. And here's one issue I have with her. Someone who is that perceptive, and I believe she is, would have picked up on the tension in the studio once her presence was added there. It encroached on our framework that we had going. Basically, it's only ever been the four of us in a studio, maybe with uh, Neil and Mal as the two roadies, or George Martin up in the control room, often. She was suddenly in the band. Uh, She didn't start singing or playing, but she was, you know, she was there just as Neil and Mal were there, or George Martin was there. Well, the fact that it was no longer the happy-go-lucky awesome, fivesome with me, that it used to be. There was another person in the studio whose thoughts were actually, even if they weren't spoken, they were impinging on what we were doing. So it was was uncomfortable. One of the things I'd done for years, you know, was uh, keep everybody out of the studio, you know, because it's not a playground, you know. It's it's a working environment, you know, and... um, 
So there'd never ever really been anybody in the studio that wasn't part of making the music, if you like. It wasn't just that Yoko, um, you know, or op opposed to the idea of having a stranger sitting there. There was a definite vibe. That's what bothered me. It was like a weird vibe. Because Yoko at that point didn't like, I mean, maybe now if you talk to her, she may say, well, she likes the Beatles or she liked the Beatles. But at that point, she didn't really like the Beatles because she saw the Beatles as a something that was between her and John. And so the vibe I picked up was that she was kind of like a wedge that was trying to drive itself uh, deeper and deeper between him and us. And again, you know, I used to just ask John, what's this about? And I said, you know, it's, what is happening here, Yoko's at all the sessions and... Uh, and he told me straight away, I said, well, you know, when you go home to, to Maureen and you tell her how your day was, you know, takes you like two lines, oh, we had a good day in the studio. And he says, well, we know exactly what's going on. You know, and that's how they started to live, every moment together. But at the time, this was us, this was our careers, we were the Beatles after all, and here was this girl, we'd never really had any of the girlfriends or wives around. And here she was, you know, either on the amp or in the bed or holding court in a way, you know, it was like we were her courtiers. It was a very embarrassing kind of thing to do. Everybody seemed to be paranoid except for us two who were in the glow of love. And, you know, everything's clear and open when you're in love mm -hmm. and everybody sort of was tense around us and, you know, what, what is she doing here at the session or why is she with him and all this sort of madness is going on around us because we just happen to be wanting to be together all the time. You, know? you would have thought that if she's picking up on that tension, she wouldn't want a part of it. Now, of course, we're not flies on the wall. We don't know what was said between her and John. And he very likely would have said, I want you there. I don't care what they think. I want you there. Well, I'm sure he did say that. I mean, oh, absolutely. But she could have still said, you know something? I need you to discuss this with them. I need you to clear the air with them because I don't want to be a party of this. It's unpleasant. I don't like the feeling and I don't want to. You know, I mean, this is the Beatles. And by now she would have known who the Beatles were and what they meant to the world. There's a responsibility that comes with that, right? To, to basically be creating some kind of a wedge. And so she could have well said to him, look, I want you to sort this out with them before I get involved. But she didn't do that. She was part of that whole passive aggression. I don't think that would ever be a thought in her head. I think... What, really? No. What indication from her previous actions would give you that that sort of rational thought from this woman <laughs> because it's certainly nothing i've seen now based on the fact that she's an intelligent woman she's a perceptive woman and so she would know or have a fair idea about how they may you know the others may be feeling she'd know that much she she if they they're feeling awkward and they're feeling attention she'd pick up on that as well I've met a lot of people, especially creative people, who are very intelligent and, and very talented in many cases, and they they lack that sort of empathy. Uh, well, empathy, yeah. Empathy, that I would agree with you, but that doesn't mean she wasn't aware of it. If I had to guess, if I had to try to crawl inside Yoko's head, I'd say she, what these guys just don't realize yet is how great I am and what an addition I'm going to be to the Beatles uh, because I, I should be a Beatle too. I should be right. In, well, that, yeah, but that's quite a thought if she had that thought. I think she did. Why else would she be bold enough 
you know, to, you know, sing on Beatle records and to say, you know, Yoko grabs a mic. I mean, all of that stuff is, oh, these guys just haven't accepted me yet. You know, I'm just a new band member and, you know, what they, I'm great. You know, what are they, they're going to be a stronger international act now, you know, because they've got me, Yoko Ono. I've got all these great ideas. Yeah, and- but if there was any doubt in her mind, as John said, early on in their relationship, George and Paul let them have it in terms of what they thought of her, right in front of her. We can quote Paul, you can look at it in the papers. He said many times that first he hated Yoko and then he got to like her. I think a lot of the time, John suspected meanness where it wasn't really there. Oh, he's presumably very paranoid. I think so. I mean, he warned me off Yoko once. You know, look, this was my, my chick, you know, just because he knew my reputation. I mean, we knew each other rather well. And um, I felt, well, I, did, I just kind of said, yeah, no problem. But, I mean, I sort of did feel he ought to have known I would. And George gave her the, was insulted her right to her face in, in, in Apple office at the beginning, just being straightforward. You know, that game of, well, I'm going to be up front because this is what I've heard. And Dylan and a few people said, you've got a lousy name in New York and uh, you, you give off bad vibes. That's what George said to her, and we both sat through it. And I didn't hit him, I don't know why. I, I couldn't believe it, you know. And they all sat there with their wives like a fucking jury and judged us. Ringo was all right, so was Maureen. Mm. But the other two really gave it to us. So now, that being the case, you know, John sort of saying, well, he, he should have hit him, and he didn't. Yeah. Went along with this, kind of sucked it up. But again, don't you think that someone else in Yoko's position would be saying, I don't want any part of this right now? I think if there's one thing Yoko's behaviors, even up to this point, prove is how her tenacious quality. She doesn't give up easy. And, well, that's for sure. And so I think she had a point to prove. Well, I'm not going to – she's no shrinking violet. As John used to say right, right up through the Playboy interviews at the end of his life, this ain't no you know, easy chick type of you – know, pushover you know she's a tough gal that's the way she got things done and whether it was passive more passive aggressive or or later on i mean think about it her attitude eventually won out i mean she is john she's been john for years and years and years so whether people liked it or not her technique worked Girl, you know the reason why In the morning Wanna die In the evening Wanna die If I ain't dead already Girl, you know the reason why Sky. My 
issues musically in the studio between sort of John and George on one side and Paul on another as well as John and Paul on one side and George on another so you, you have those dynamics once Brian dies there's that power vacuum you have the whole thing about northern songs and uh, Apple many things happen to sink the Titanic and I'm not saying that Yoko was the iceberg. No, no, I don't think she was. But, but I do think that she's one of the elements. I don't think that she's completely blameless. Bring it back to September of 66. So John hasn't even met Yoko yet. George goes off to India. Paul's doing the Family Way soundtrack. John goes off to do the movie. Ringo goes to his garden, I guess, to play with the kids. They all had individual things that yeah. were very diverse that they wanted to do, that they were almost desperate to go off and change how they looked, change like change everything very, very quickly, which interests me that their look changed. You know, George wants to do his spiritual thing in India, like right away. And what interests me is Paul and Ringo want to spend time with John, who gets, you know a little lonely out in Spain, apparently. But they're already splitting there. They have different interests. And I think as the opportunity to sit around and think about it had never really been there before because they, they were booked to do 10 things a day and they were you know living out of each other's pockets. So I think that's just a natural thing of guys that age as well. It's like, these are my college roommates and now, geez, I'm, college is kind of over. I, I think it's time for me to go see what I can do or maybe I want to concentrate more on this. I, I've always said Yoko 
always offered that opportunity to John, but he wasn't ready for it until he came back from India. Right. I mean, you know, you talk about a woman of ambition. There's that story that Cynthia told, of course, that one evening where she and John got into the back of their limo and Yoko basically invited herself in and perched herself between the two of them. Uh, If ever there was a power play, there was one. Oh, that's life imitating art or something like that. I mean, so much for her feminism. She's making an aggressive move against another woman and she continued to do so. So that's another thing I have an issue with her. Well, I think feminism can also be aggressive. Women who, uh, even today, if, if, if uh, women aren't aggressive enough for the feminists, didn't they always put down women that sh- made a different choice in life? So, yeah, but that's philosophical. This wasn't a philosophical thing, right? I don't think she was looking at Cynthia as some pathetic woman that she needed to put down. I th- this was just a, a pure power play for John. Oh, and well, yeah. Cynthia I mean, that... was the obstacle to get out of the way. And yeah, and she was, the plan was already, you know, she was working the plan already. She makes this aggressive move on John and then continues with that, right? Continues on that road of just being that wedge the whole time, the wedge in his marriage and the wedge in the Beatles when it's clear she's not going to become a member of the group. I think the wedge in the marriage was always at a certain point when it when opportunity presented, as I say, where, where he could be more than a benefactor. Because remember, she, I think before... Wasn't the show Yoko and Me? That was before he left Cynthia, wasn't it? Right. The art show. So she had brought it to that level. He was willing to fund her art. And now she senses, wait a minute, maybe this could be more. She always had ambitions, apparently, to do music. And she she certainly kept doing it long after John was dead. Uh, I think that when the Beatles rebuffed her as a member... I don't think she wanted to get rid of the Beatles. I think she wanted to browbeat them into accepting her. I mean, they eventually did. She is a Beatle now. I mean, she makes Beatle decisions, you know, every week, ostensibly. So I, I, I don't think she, that she sat there and said, oh, they've rebuffed me, therefore I want to drive a wedge and, you know, screw the Beatles. I think John probably bitched and complained and bitched and complained about it. You know, he, he was growing up too. He wanted to do his own things. I, I'm sure Yoko would have been happy to have things coexist because it would have been easier money and no court cases. But I think she just wanted to be a Beatle, and I think that was what she was working on. Yeah. Now, not that you or I would know the operation of her mind and what she's thinking and what she's feeling, but so far from what you've said, she was basically just an opportunist. Of course, the story, according to John and Yoko, is that they both fell madly in love with each other. Are you saying that you're a bit sceptical about that on her part? I'm completely sceptical. If you fall madly in love... Uh, you know, looking into each other's eyes in the basement gallery at Indiga, you don't wait 18 months to consummate it. No, no. But let's say it was later on when they did start to get together, even after, you know, the first night that they made love. And I know there's been sort of disputes as to when that actually was. But let's just go with the story as they told it. Are you still saying that even after that, she didn't fall for him? Maybe at that part she did. But that sort of mindset, to me is always seeking advantage, even when the game is changing around. Yoko would have been an excellent contestant on Survivor. <laughs> so all bodies strewn all over the place. She just would, I, I just, that's just how I sense her because 
wherever she sees opportunity, I mean, the last thing in the world, you know, Yoko tried so many different musical styles later on and stuff. And then suddenly she became like this in her older age, like starting to have club hits and stuff. I don't think she cared what the venue was as long. She just needed the fame and she needed the, the approval. I mean, I know her approach was completely different. We shouldn't be putting down a woman for being strong and tough like a guy. I'm not okay? putting it down. You know, no, I know. And, and neither am I. I know, you know, that's often an issue where, you know, a woman's a bitch for being tough. Yeah. Yeah, that's not fair. I'm not in any way subscribing to that. But what does occur to me in a way is that Paul always takes the knocks for being in some ways the most ruthless, you know, in terms of trying to get his way. So it occurs to me that in a way, maybe Yoko was more the female version of Paul than she was of John. Oh, absolutely. I think so. Because think of how their life was once they did get together, John and Yoko. John was not a good businessman. Yoko came from that great banking tradition, apparently, in her family in Japan. And, you know, he'd, he'd have been skint, I think, if it hadn't been for Yoko's business acumen, you know, taking things over, making the tough business deals and stuff. She was really good at that stuff. And I think he was very happy to let that happen. You know, you and I spoke about this one time. We we're talking about the difference between uh, Mick and Keith and John and Paul. And I've always said that, you know, Mick was a trained London School of Economics businessman. And oh, yeah. Was, you know, and I think the women in their lives were smart enough to be more passive and be supportive of whatever their husbands needed, but not interfere in the family business. You know, Well, smart enough or they were told in no uncertain terms. Oh, yeah, could be either one, but either way around... No one ever looks at Patty Harrison uh, or or Maureen Starkey and said, you know, there's a couple of pushy chicks, you know, or look at them getting in the way of the business. You know, they just didn't. Well, none, none of the first generation Beatle wives' fiancés were. No, they weren't. And the one difference, I think, is that the Stones weren't afraid to get rid of their initial manager sort of on their own, I think. And, you know search around for better deal. You know, they were businessmen. I just think that they were better businessmen. They could separate from it. I think Paul became a businessman through his father-in-law who pointed out to him, you should start investing some of this money. And the only business he felt comfortable learning about was music publishing. And he became great at buying up, you know, music publishing, right? So, but John never really found that. I mean, Yoko found real estate and stuff like that, that they made money in. Or, you know, but that was her idea. I don't think it had much to do with, you know, I think they fell into comfortable roles. But I mm. think Yoko was, you know, he certainly had his chance to stay away from Yoko if he want, you know, after the last weekend. Seen the wind, neither you nor I, but when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by.
love is catching on. Oh, smile, 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 smile. Who has seen your dream? Only you and him. But when the world gets bright and clear, you know that we were Point behind two virgins. It's uh, the main point behind it is to open people's minds to what's happening today. There are people all over the country humming into tape recorders, and we hope to bring them out into the open and hum together. You understand? Now sold 1,300 due to the great promotion <laughs> from Apple Dietetics. Is there any need to do this in public, Mr. Lennon? I feel obliged in the position I am today as a pop idol and the power I have to do something for the good. And uh, I feel obliged to speak out. And that's as simply as I can put it, really. George and Paul were a little shocked. That was weird. That really shocked me, the fact that they were prudish. You know? And they, the actual, the first record that would have been out on Apple would have been Two Virgins if they hadn't held it up. You know, they stalled and they said this, that and the other. And George was saying, why? Why did you do it though? Why did you do it? And I was going, why not? Why not? Nobody could give me an answer. So. That it started there, and there, you know, I thought I didn't, you know, being naive in 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 lots of ways, I had no idea I was going to get slacking from the immediate family. I thought, you know, maybe somebody out there will say something, but I was making a statement. You know, Yoko and I were making a statement, you know? and but nobody could understand, you know, a statement being made in another form other than a record. The statement, it was a statement, it was as good as a song, it was better, you know, you couldn't say it better, picture speaks louder than words, right? There it was, you know, beautiful statement. <clears throat> and then, <clears throat> I remember Sir Joseph Lockett, who I've forgiven now and I like anyway, but saying anything we can do to help you with this, and he got me to sign him one, he's got a signed edition of the very first one, anything, and I find out he sent a note to every EMI group around the world, do not handle this record. I don't think I actually heard it. I think I just heard bits of it. I, I wasn't particularly into it, you know, into that kind of thing. That was like his and her um, affair, you know, that was the trip. Uh, the Naked album cover was less um, general than that, meaning they didn't have, we didn't have, that was the, one of the first things we did. We thought, you know, we felt like two virgins, that's what the album was called, because we were in love just met and we were trying to make something. All that I remember was um, a, a guy called Jeremy Banks, right, who was uh, working at Apple at the time. I think John had just given him a roll of film and said, get that developed, please. 
right? And so when he got it back and <laughs> saw these pictures, right, Je uh, Jeremy always used to come in and say, you know, everything was mind-blowing, you know? And uh, just that one time he was right, actually. You know, he came and said, this is mind-blowing, have you seen this? He couldn't believe it when he picked them up, you know? The cover was the mind-blower. Uh, I remember to this day he came and showed me the cover. I don't really remember what the music is. I'd have to play it now. Um, but he showed me this cover, and, and I and I, I pointed to the times. <laughs> oh, you've even got the times in it, like his dick wasn't out, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I said, Ah, oh, come on, John. You know, you know, you know, you're doing all this stuff. You know, it, it may be cool for you, but you know, we have to answer. You know, it doesn't matter one of us, whichever one of us does something, we all have to answer for it. And he says. Well, Ring, you only have to answer the phone. <laughs> so, okay, fine. Because <laughs> it was true, the press would be calling off. You know, what do you think of this? And of course, the Sunday papers were at us, and with this photograph, this filthy thing, look at these filthy people, and a big circle over the naughty part. Yeah. And arrows, this is where the naughty part would be if people like us were not so decent that we wouldn't dream of showing it to you. But aren't they awful? I know it was kind of quite shocking. Um, but I'm not sure whether us lot were too shocked um, by it, just physically. We just knew we'd have a bit of flack with it. And, you know, obviously the minute the newspapers saw a shot like that. I mean, it's hard to say what was the tipping point in the split of the Beatles. It seems to be that it was the whole dispute over Klein managing their affairs, OK, and Paul not wanting that. That seems to have been the real sticking point. But I don't think we can discount what had been already going down, you know, with Yoko's presence in the studio and at group business meetings as well. Again, this is all, at this point, hypothetical, but... Would Paul have dug in as much? Would there have been that kind of standoff if Yoko had never happened in John's life? You know, we don't know. I think it was just another element to piss everyone off. I think there was a little tug of war going on between Yoko and Paul for John's professional attention. Let's not get into the personal side at all. But wasn't it Paul who kept trying? You know, he understood the business ramifications of this and would, you know, that famous story, John says, you know, you can't just show up. It's not, it's not 1958 anymore. You can't just show up at the door with a guitar. I think Paul knew very well, you know, let's get past all this stuff and make some Beatles. You know, we can still do all our solo stuff, but let's make some Beatles music. Yeah, but that almost happened in 75, didn't it? In New Orleans um, for Venus and Mars. John was going down there when he was still with May Pang. Yeah, May. And then he gets back together with Yoko and all bets are off. And yes, that's his choice. There's a theory that, you know, Yoko hypnotized him. I don't know. But he still was in, you know, I'm sure he was in control of his own mind sufficiently to make his own choices. And so, yeah, he decided not to go there. But we also strongly suspect that had he not got together with Yoko, he would have got back together with Paul. There, I think we have the difference in the show. I don't believe Yoko broke up the Beatles. However, I do believe she kept them apart. Right. And that's a different story because 
I think she decided, once again, the most important word for her is control. I think it it, it was by that point abundantly clear that, you know, she could manage the quarter of the Beatles' empire that, that would then come into her hands to manage and do quite well with it and just didn't need anything more than residuals from old work. And eventually she and John, you know, got back, you know, to do after that long layoff and they did double fantasy together. So her dream was coming true. That's what she always wanted was to be, you know, she, in her mind, she was the equal to John as an artist. John, I think that was probably the only human being that ever dared to to think that, not just say it, but to actually think it. I think that was attractive to John. I think he, he imagine this guy, you know, a lifetime of yes people in a sense from his early 20s, or certainly after Brian died, everyone's yesing him to death. I think he liked that. Like this, as he would say in his own words, she's as barmy as me. Yeah, I mean, you know, John was the wind-up artist extraordinaire, wasn't he? I mean, that was what he did. That was how he rolled all his life. And I think Yoko was a perfect vehicle for him to wind everyone up, to wind up the world. And she and, could wind him up. And in there, we, once... George and Paul weren't on board because he said Ringo was kind of okay. But once George and Paul weren't on board with her, then he's going to get under their skin with it as well. He's just going to get in their face with all this. And that's what he did. If I had to guess the one event that probably really broke the Beatles up, it would be the thing where McCartney, you know, took a business opportunity, I think at the suggestion of his father-in-law, and and bought some additional Beatles stock at a, at a sort of aggressive price without informing John about it, so that he now had a bigger controlling interest than John did. My guess is, that if there's one thing that really caused trouble, that would be it. Not just because one guy's got the upper hand of the team, but that it was done in secret, you know, without being informed. And I wouldn't say within secrecy, like he was trying to hide it, but he just didn't bother to inform. It was a, a very bad mistake, I think, on his part. I think that had more to do with it than that was the tipping point, as you would say, to me. Then there's that story told by Paul's girlfriend in 1968, Francie Schwartz, in her 1972 book, Body Count. She's basically talking about how John and Yoko were living at Cavendish Avenue in the summer of 68 before they moved into Ringo's flat in Montague Square. And I think they were there for about three weeks that must have been a really long three weeks. I bet it was. Uh, yeah, wouldn't you like to be a fly on that wall? I, I think everything must have been flying. The fur must have been flying by the end of that. Oh, my God. At that time, John and Yoko were really getting it from both the British press and the British public. A lot of hateful articles and hate mail coming at them. And Francie writes, but Paul was treating them like shit too. He even sent them a hate letter once, unsigned, typed. I brought it in with the morning mail. Paul put most of the fan mail in a big basket and let it sit for weeks. But John and Yoko opened every piece. When they got to the anonymous note, they sat puzzled, looking at each other with genuine pain in their eyes. You and your Jap tart think you're hot shit, it said. John put it on the mantel, and in the afternoon, Paul bopped in, prancing much the same self-conscious way he did when we met. Oh, I just did that for a lark, he said in his most sugar-coated accent. It was embarrassing. The three of us swiveled around, staring at him. You could see the pain in John. Yoko simply rose above it, 
feeling only empathy for John. Hmm. I have a real hard time believing he would bother to do that, though in 1968, Paul is in a very strange place by all accounts. Well, that letter actually does exist. That postcard exists. And yeah, see, I've, wow, that's, it, that's intense. Yeah. Listen to this article from Uncut magazine in April 2019. And it was a boxed item within the article about John and Yoko called Missive Attack, Lennon's unpublished book of hate mail. As well as the many films, albums, campaigns and concerts of this era, some ideas never got off the ground. One of these was a book that Lennon and Ono wanted to publish as a follow-up to the best-selling In His Own Right and A Spaniard in the Works. John had done these two books with Jonathan Cape and they wanted him to do another one, recalls John Kosh. John Kosh was the guy who actually did the Abbey Road album cover design. He did the wedding album. Right, and this is kind of a precursor to the wedding album because if you remember... Part of the packaging with the wedding album were press clippings that British press and some of the vile things they said about Yoko. How did uh, Roy Carr and Tony Tyler put it? A scrapbook of the Lennon's antics. Right. Yes. Well, John Kosh continues in this article talking about John. He had collected all the hate letters that he and Yoko had received and had this stack of letters saying things like, why did you marry that Jap tart? And can you send me a picture of Beetle Paul? We gathered together all these letters and worked out a prototype of a book with a cover and frontispiece. We took it to Jonathan Cape and showed them the proof. They took one look and then pointed their finger at the door. He was making a serious point. These letters were horrendous, but nobody was going to publish them. I've also heard the book was actually going to be called Jap Tart. <laughs> Yeah, that's not going to work either. Right. And and there's footage. Um, I was just going to ask you, yeah. isn't there footage from uh, the, it's not in the finished film, but during the Get Back, Let It Be filming, isn't there some kind of, I guess John is looking at galleys with somebody? With Robert Fraser in Savile Row. Yeah. Amazing, right, that this really happened. And yet, while John was spilling his guts to Jan Wenner in the 1970 Rolling Stone interview, and talking about how Paul and George, you know, had it in for him and Yoko, or really gave it to them. Isn't it amazing that he never, ever mentioned this? I wonder why. I think they hadn't made that agreement. They made an agreement at one point to not snipe at each other in public. I wonder if that would have been too direct. No, I, I don't think so. Maybe the clue is in that line that Francie quotes Paul as saying in an offhanded way, I just did that for a lark. Her take clearly is that it was anything but a lark. What if it was a lark? What if it was a parody of the letters he'd been getting? It does seem like a sort of sick joke, but maybe ultimately John and Yoko took it that way. And that's why it was never mentioned. That's the only plausible reason. I don't think that's the kind of thing you'd forget. Right. Amazing, eh? Get back. When you were recording it, Yoko was in the studio. And every time you sang Get Back, John accused you of staring at Yoko. And he <laughs> took it as an insult. 
because uh, you were telling her to get back to where you once belonged. Well, yeah. You is there was any? That? Was that? No, that's not true. No. Uh, I mean, true? you know, those were very paranoid times. I you know. know, and. Let's face it, we, we didn't welcome Yoko in the studio. I know. Because we thought it was a guy thing. Yes. I mean, even our even the guys' wives and the girlfriends and stuff weren't really welcome in the studio. They could, you know, control room for a quick visit. Right. But actually sit in the in the studio with us, it was like, uh, no, excuse me, um, we're working. Did you, you have know. the guts to say that to John? No. You did not. If uh, you had said it that, was kind of obvious, though. Yes, but did, weren't you acting out passively, aggressively, in the sense that you're sitting in the studio, you're just steaming, rather than saying, "John," in a kind of a loving yeah, way, "This is yeah. this is not this is hurting me. I can't work this way yeah. to have someone observing." But but you, everyone was just kind of sniping. Um, I don't even think we were sniping. I think we were just fuming. Right. Well, and John, sulking and being kind of, you know. Did John ever say, look, I'm bringing... He didn't ask permission to do no, it. No, he didn't. It, you know, the thing is, it was really just the initial shock of Yoko sitting on one of the amps. Right. You know, excuse me, that's my amp. <laughs> yeah. Um, she couldn't use a stool. Oh, I but, would think um, it would be mind-blowing, Paul. It was, it was mind-blowing. But um, later on, we, we suddenly sort of thought, you know what? John's in love with this girl. If he wants to bring in the studio, we've got to cope with that. And we learned to cope with it. And, you know, I now feel that he had the right to do that. Um, it might have been better if he'd been a little bit more diplomatic and sort of says, hey, guys, you know, I'd love her to be, I, I, I really love her and I just want to be near her all the time. Right. But we had to figure that out. And we did eventually, but it took some time. And there was a few... Uh, Looks went on. I'm sure John was in love. When you're in love, sometimes you think crazy thoughts. You know, everyone's after my girl. I found this happiness, and I don't want anyone to get in, but you know, take it away, and then add drugs to that, or substance, or drink, or anything, and you get responses like that. So, I, I doubt it sincerely. He's looking at Yoko and saying, "Get back." I, I don't know. It just doesn't. <laughs> no. But but are you saying, picking up on what you said earlier, that while you think that Yoko helped to keep the Beatles apart once they did split up, are you saying that you don't think she played any role, wittingly or unwittingly, in helping to break up the She group? played a role in that John finally took her as the avenue of escape. But I'd, I think it was always there for him because he was looking for a way out, whether it was making movies with D Dick Lester for the rest of his life or or, or uh, underwriting young artists for the, or artists in general and just becoming some sort of entrepreneur or some way out of the Beatles. What are you going to do? I think Yoko became that. But uh, yeah, as far as do I believe for one minute that she would kill a business opportunity like the Beatles? No, no, I just don't believe it. Not consciously. The treatment of Yoko as an individual and the treatment of them as a couple by their fellow Beatles, specifically by Paul and George, you just have to listen to the 68 Christmas record. Once upon a time, there were two balloons called Jock and Yono. They were strictly in love, bound to happen in a million years. They were together, man. Unfortunately, the timetable, they seemed to have previous experience, which kept calling them one way or another. You know how it is. But they battled on against overwhelming oddities, including some of their beast friends. 
been in love, they clung together even more, man. But some of the poisonous monster of outdated busload hip throwers did stick slightly. And they occasionally had to resort to the dry cleaners. Luckily, this did not kill them and they weren't banned from the Olympic Games. They lived hopefully ever after and who could blame them? Some of our beast friends. Oh, yes. Once upon a pool table. Yeah, I mean, no disguising it there. I mean, he's actually using a Christmas record that they issue as a group to have a go at them, even if it's in coded terms that the fans wouldn't have picked up on. But he's having a go at them. Yeah. And they and I, they still put it out. I think that's I think that's that's John. You know, who's gonna say no? You know, who's mm. gonna say you can't you know, Brian would Brian have allowed that out? Of course not. But he's been dead for a while, so he's he's not coming down for breakfast and he's not stopping the Christmas record. So I I think that's more him though. I honest to God. Think of the history in all of these 40 years since John has been dead. Yoko's an excellent businesswoman. She's been more willing than any of them to to scour the back catalog and give the fans what they want. You can debate some of her choices aesthetically, but uh, Yoko has been a pretty wise business person, putting out things at, at pivotal times, whether it was the Lost Lennon series or some of the you know ish, the albums made out out of you know existing session tapes, even Men Love Avenue, um, I applaud her. I, I think she would never have killed the Beatles. I think I think she was there for John, and I'm sure she wanted to control John, and I'm sure she wanted to become a big star. And if that meant they had this solo career with the Plastic Ono band, but he'd go back and do a Beatles record for three months a year, what's the harm in another paycheck? So I that's why I say I I don't. The older I get, the less I believe that Yoko was like, ah, oh, let's break up the Beatles and just be you and me. What about her presence at Twickenham during the January 69 sessions? The day of George's walkout, the 10th of January, and the whole Yoko wants a mic and imposing herself and then getting involved in a group jam, which they all seem to be happy to get involved with. I still see it as her trying to win them over in her own way. Mm. You know, just I, she she is a Beatle. Do you now. not see it though as like where well, George is gone? I can literally, I mean, I can sit on his stall. I've eaten his biscuits, <laughs> and um, you know, and uh, hey, maybe I can just fill the void. Do you think it was that crass and that obvious? I don't think she was thinking that far. I doubt. I think it's like George is pissed off, and he's. He'll be back in a couple of days. But if he's not, we've still got the Beatles here. We could we could have Billy Preston join. It could be Yoko and Billy and Harry Nielsen and all these other people could join and we'll just make a new Beatles up. But it's still the Beatles. We'll have that name and we'll have that fan base and stuff. I, I just, you know, whether she felt she was going to replace George forever, I don't think that was in her mind. She's just like, oh, one less dis- dissenting voice. Let me show you what I can do with my yowling. <laughs> this will impress him. It's who needs who needs Jimi Hendrix. I can do it vocally, right? Yeah. Have you thought of the vocal I could do for Within You Without You? Oh boy, he may never have come back. <laughs> he, she could just be wow. She could just be. She could be like lead Yoko in the background and just sort of fade her up as like the guitar solo if George didn't feel like doing one. 
you know. Just... I remember something Victor Spinetti once said to me. I'm not saying he was necessarily right in this, but his feeling was that neither Yoko or Linda did anything to pull the men together. Yeah. You know, I'm not so sure that that's fair about Linda, but certainly with Yoko, you know, you don't see much effort, but we obviously, again, we don't know what went on behind closed doors, but we don't see of anything of Yoko trying to pull John back into the Beatles or anything. It's like she's quite happy to take him off on their ventures. I don't think that that was her skill set. And I don't think it was Linda's either. Linda strikes me at the time as being kind of shy, or at least seemed that way. I mean, certainly she was a good businesswoman herself. She left a surprise fortune, you know, when she died 22 years ago uh, with her with her veggie business. You know, she was, I mean, they're both very intelligent women, but they also were very young at the time. Well, I think Linda was young. And I think Linda certainly did not get in the way of Paul trying to reunite with John at all. I right, think I agree. Um I think at that point is like I say keeping them apart the, the idea of trying to force them together when obviously they're going in, they're in growing pains and they're all on each other's nerves you know let's not forget the failure of Apple I think had a the biggest amount of of influence on them breaking up I mean everyone's going to be pointing fingers at each other. Well, you you signed up that shitty band. No, you you recommended, you know, Jackie Lomax, everything stiffed and you know what I mean? And where's all the money going? And and so finally, you know, we got all right, the tough guy that straightened out the stone situation, got them a great contract. You know, I've read stories where apparently Alan Klein really studied up on John, you know, about some of the and was very respectful in the first meeting, apparently, to Yoko, really like addressing her, looking at her and talking about her artwork and the films and the fluxus and all of that stuff. And I know that, you know, it's like John Belushi being Ron DeCline looking in the mirror. You know, I'm trying to protect you from people like yes, me. Yes. I mean, he knew how to play it. I mean, it's. Yeah, but the thing is, you know, we, as you said yourself, you know, John wasn't exactly a great businessman and he could be, as well as a cynic, he could be incredibly naive a lot of times and get taken in by certain individuals. That said, you also alluded to the fact that Yoko came from this business background in, in her family. Yeah. And subsequently, she would sort of run the Lennon business as such, you know, and really massively boost the Lennon finances. So it is a bit strange that she got taken in by Klein as well at the beginning, knowing what Mick Jagger had already warned them about, how Klein had handled the stones. You wonder how much of that, again, was John and her just going along. You know, in other words, mm. she had she took the long view, I think. If there's one thing we can say about Yoko's history, if we look at it a certain way, she always took the long view. Whether it was the moment she met John in the gallery in November of 1966 to, to, you know, going through the Klein process to, you know, running the family business. She, she was somebody who took the long view. Well, she was evidently taking the long view when she was attending Beatles business meetings. I mean, you know, George wasn't only pissed off that she ate his biscuits and that she was around in the studio a lot of the time or all of the time. He was also really royally pissed off, as we know, that she would insert herself into their meetings, including when he did walk out. 
Yeah, on and, them, but she was right. You know, and then <laughs> they had the, then they had a, a get together. She was right because she was the business half of John, probably right from the get go. I'm sure it was you know they're trading stories of childhood and every, you know her abandonment and the World War II problems and. Oh yeah, and by the way, you know, I come from like this big banking family, and oh really? You know, I mean, yeah, but that's got nothing to do with them trying to sort out, you know, personal issues. Where George has walked out of the band, and now he's discussing about possibly coming back and being more on his terms. And apparently, at that meeting, that first meeting that they had after his walkout, John hardly did any talking and left it to Yoko. Yeah, she didn't have, you know, that's such a passive-aggressive move on John's part. And she's completely facilitating it. I think she was filling a role that he couldn't fill. Maybe he had ingested too much of something bad that day. And Yeah, but she doesn't have to do that. You know, he might want to do that. She doesn't have to do that. He might that. have said, you handle it. You know, to the way That's he said with all, the business, thing. with all the business and for the later life, you know, like what it, I always find it really interesting when I look at the story of the last weekend, the second last weekend, if you will. Right. The one in 73, mm. four and yeah. five, because. You know, John has spent a substantial amount of time away from Yoko and built a different life. He's back in contact with all his friends. He's doing some of the best work of his life. And and he's hanging around with somebody. His girlfriend is somebody. They're, they're united in rock and roll in a sense that this is a New York girl that grew up knowing all about, you know, the various early rock and roll that John loved. You know, and she experienced it as a younger kid, of course, but that was her hometown music and stuff. And but what's the one difference? Um, even though May Pang was you know booking all the sessions and taking care of all the bills and all that stuff that Yoko would do, she was more of an equal. She wasn't mother. And I think eventually he went back to mother. It was easier. Yeah, but my point though is still that she didn't have to be that ballsy. And I'm not again. I'm not saying this because she's a woman. I'd say the same thing if it was a guy doing it. it makes absolutely no difference. She's inserting herself where she really shouldn't. And even if John was giving her the green light or pushing her to do it, she didn't have to do it. You don't have to do just because the opportunity is there. I can't see Yoko ever backing down from a challenge or a request from John, especially in those days. If John had said, I want you to do, I want you to play rhythm guitar and she didn't even know how to do it, she'd still try. I mean, I, I just... That's do you just... honestly think, though, that Yoko would do something she didn't want to do? I don't think she would see that I'm as a so problem. Sure I don't that. Th- negotiating on John's behalf. Why would that be something she didn't want to do? She loves power. Yeah, I, I, I get that she'd want to do it. Yeah, I'm just questioning how right that is. Oh, uh, now you're getting into now you're getting into morals and the way we, you and I think, or you you think of morals. I'm I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of somebody whose behavior pattern we've been talking about and we've observed. And how they did their art. But we can still opine on whether, even if you say, okay, it's our values, it's not hers. You can't always steer clear of expressing what you think is right or wrong. And I'm just saying I think it's plain wrong for her to have run with it in the way that she did. Yeah, I guess that's where we disagree, I guess. They're at this really critical point. George has walked out on the group. He's quit the Beatles. And, you know, the band most likely can't continue without him unless... They bring in Eric. I, well, see, now that's an opinion there. And and that's an opinion from 50 years later. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, is that they knew it was a pivotal meeting that, for, without a doubt, you know, they go, what's it, I think, to Ringo's house yeah. for the meeting. And uh, 
That is the one time that she should be keeping completely out of it. These guys have been together a decade. Look at what they've achieved. Now, I get it. You're telling me why she did it, that she spotted the opportunity and she, she stepped into that void. But my whole point is she shouldn't have done it. And I think we, you know, we're entitled to an opinion on that oh, to say it's a marriage. It's a marriage, right? It's like me coming along and you're having a dispute with your wife and I insert myself into that argument. Yeah, I'd ask you, please don't do that again. <laughs> Didn't work <laughs> last time. I'm not going to sort out your arguments again, Eric. No, I, my, my point is this, is, and I'm really, I'm not trying to just be a contrarian, I, and this is truly how I feel about this, is we are talking with hindsight. In the moment, we don't know John's exact condition that day. It's kind of like when you listen to the famous boardroom tape where Paul might have been puffing on the Magic Dragon cigarette and sounds a little bit, you know, different. Maybe a little bit less, you know, maybe kind of, he always sounded bummed out to me, but other people said he sounds like he's stoned or something like that. We don't know what condition John was in for that meeting. Uh, I think that was the, the two junkies period. Uh, so we don't it know. It was, but we also know that George walked out of that meeting early because he was so pissed off with John and Yoko. Yeah. And I mean, it's not to say that it's what George wanted to have happen, but one has to look at the uh, the results of the meetings. The results of the meetings is George comes back. So Yoko, I'm sure. Well, no, that's at... a subsequent meeting where most likely Yoko pulled back a bit. Um, but that that meeting where she took over for John, it resulted in George walking out again. Let's say that George walked out permanently. Yes, they did great work together. They were not the Beatles of 50 years forward where they're gods. There would have been a contingency plan. if, As long as that unit, the Beatles, kept going with a different guitarist or a, Billy Preston and Yoko joining or whatever configuration, or maybe they get Clapton to join. Who the hell knows? He was a little bit of an opportunist, you know? <laughs> think, mm. think about yeah. it. <laughs> so friends are not friends, you know what I mean? So uh, all I'm saying is, is I don't think anybody was thinking in historical terms. They're thinking in the moment, George is pissed, he's left, you know, they all have their own agenda. John doesn't feel like doing it. Yoko fills the void. She's going to pinch hit for John in that meeting. It doesn't matter if George likes it, hates it, doesn't care. Those were the f players that could be put on the field to play the game that day, and Yoko filled uh, filled that position. Yeah. Let's say she says nothing, and John just sits there like a lump and says nothing. I don't think that would have been very good either. It's just that's the, that was the operating unit at that time. It was John and Yoko, one word, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's what that's what it's, it's interesting, isn't it? That Ringo and Maureen, according to John, they were okay. They were fine with them, but it, it was George and Paul who got stuck in. And think of the different roles. You know, Ringo is the rock, right? He's just there. He's got to deal with these egos and the songwriters and everything, and he's got the greatest gig in the world, right? I mean, he he's done very very well for himself. He's got opportunities to to live out his fantasy as a film producer and an actor because of this gig. What's to, you know, I think he was good at going along to get along. Interesting, though, that, isn't it? Because Ringo's no pushover, as we know. He was the first one to quit the band as well. But he loved these guys. So it's interesting that, as you say, he was emotionally, in many ways, the rock, just as he was as the drummer. He, you know, he was that. Absolutely. Rock steady drama. Let them let them go on. It, it, it's kind of interesting to me 
might have been George talking about it. I have I have heard George say what I'm about to say or versions of it. That Ringo would just sort of sit at the back there and just these guys could be noodling and he's just playing in perfect time for hours and hours. And then all of a sudden, when he'd finally be too knackered to do anything, he'd just get up <laughs> and put on his coat and they go, okay, session's over. Yeah. He can't do yeah. it anymore. So so Ringo was the rock in many ways. Um, he is such an underrated section of Beatles history. And that sounds crazy to say that, but what I mean is, is what would the Beatles have been if Uncle Pete had stayed as the drummer, you know? <laughs> Well, I don't think they would have been. No, I don't think they would have been either, you know, from personality-wise to being able to deal with the frustrated drummers in the band uh, and to be such a great player and such an innovative player. I, I think he just, um, you know, it, it, it was the perfect storm to have him as part of the group. And I think, yeah, I'm not surprised that he was the first with Maureen to say, okay, so this is the new John. This is the guy we love. He seems to love this woman. We'll We'll learn to love her. Right. Now, I mean, Yoko's presence on Beatles record was, you know, there on the White Album, right? Bungalow Bill, she sings a line. And then, of course, the participation with John and George on Revolution 9. And what's the new Mary Jane? She looks as an African queen she eating twelve chapatis and cream She tastes as Mongolian lamb She coming from Aldebaran What a shame Mary Jane had made a party Like to be married with Yeti He grooving such cookies spaghetti She jumping as Mexican bean To make that her body more thin What a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party What a shame Mary Jane, what a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party she catch Patagonian pancakes With that one and gin party makes She having always good contacts She making with apple and contract What a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party What a shame Mary Jane, what a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party Thank you. 
Before we get taken away. John would have loved it if she could have been a participant, at least, in some of their sessions. Well, she was a participant, wasn't she? Yeah, but I think on a more fixed basis, if you like, having a greater role in the Beatles. And you can understand the others saying like, whoa, no, you know, it's us. It's the four of us. That's it. I definitely understand. And I can also see from John's perspective, a guy who constantly you know, wanted to move on, he'd get bored with stuff and he'd want to move on. Whether it was, you know, one of Paul's songs in the studio, they were doing multiple takes, whatever it was, he always wanted to just keep evolving. So I can understand that he was sort of thinking, you know what, we've done what we've done. Here we are. And how about a whole new phase of the Beatles now, you know, bring some fresh blood in. I can see that perspective as well. Well, that's why I would say that Yoko would never want to kill the Beatles brand. How interesting that right around that period when the singles come out that Billy Preston is credited on the label, you know? Mm. They didn't do it with Civil, what's his name, the horn player, I don't think. (laughs) 
No, but I suppose because he had quite a fundamental role on Get Back, right? Absolutely. That, you know, with with yeah. the keyboard. So it's running all the way through the song. So, yeah, they did it there. But it's true, they don't credit Yoko, do they, on Revolution 9? No, and they don't credit her on Bungalow Bill. Well, that's just a one-liner, you know, fair enough. They don't credit Patty for backing vocals on some of the tracks. It's a one-line, but as, as Sleepy Labeef would say, it's one line, but it's a mighty line. Yes. As I say, my argument will always be that Yoko did provide an avenue for John to leave the Beatles and, and have, a, have a feeling of support. And um, I think that's where it ends. I think she's far too business savvy to want to kill the golden goose like the Beatles. Remember love, love is what it takes to 
So, okay, one word answer, yes or no. Did Yoko help to break up the Beatles? I so dislike one word answers. Uh, but you've got to give one here, mate. Maybe. No, no. <laughs> you asked for it. <laughs> no. It's a, is that how you answered multi-choice quizzes at school? Where it had yes or no and you just put maybe. Ask me for another one-word answer on that. <laughs> I'd say sometimes. <laughs> In all seriousness, do you think, yes or no, did she help to break up the Beatles? I'm not saying whether it's not saying whether it was willingly or unwittingly, but do you think, yes or no, she helped to break up the Beatles? I do. Here's the problem. It depends on what you mean by help. Help implies intention. Do I think she intentionally helped to break up the Beatles? No. No, 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 no. Okay, I'll reword it, but it, it means the same thing. Did she play a role, whether it was intentional or unintentional? Did she play a role? Is she one of the components of the Beatles' breakup? Okay, if you word it that way, yeah, she's one of the components. God, I finally got you to answer that bloody question. Well, you just got to earn it, dude. I'm not going to give it away. <laughs> <You know? sighs> Man. But you, it's because people, as I say, especially in this time that we live in, where, you know, the semantics are everything, um, I just want to be perfectly clear, as Dick Nixon used to say, uh, that uh, I think her very being in those circumstances and in the role she was playing in her boyfriend, soon-to-be husband's life, um, yeah, because she... But it took a long, long time. If her intention was to break up the Beatles, she, sh she could have done it or done more to have that happen, facilitated a lot earlier. I think that she was there. She was willing to do certain things in a certain ma manner. But as a business person that I respect her of, and, and especially how she has tried really hard in the intervening 40 years, she's been a very active participant in what of the Beatles gets out there for us all to enjoy. And I think she's, she's done a good solid business job, sometimes a little slower than I'd like to see things happen. Yeah, I mean, there have been some questionable things like her countersigning the lithographs and issuing those with her signature. Well, that's a that's a John and Yoko thing. That's not a Beatle thing for me. I, I separate their... No, it's a John thing. Well, she is, you know, the marketing of John is, you know, she could be worse than... The, the two only really gross ones I ever saw her were, were the revolution uh, being used for a sneakers ad, which I'm not even sure was her decision. The really weird ones. Did you ever see the Citroen ad with the ghost of John talking about the cars? Well, that was pretty gross. I don't know how that one happened. That's that's the only real slip in judgment I've ever seen with her. Yeah, but no, but with the lithos, that would be like having possession of the Mona Lisa and exhibiting it with your signature. There's people. There's there's people doing that now. There's a guy that does phony Andy Warhol stuff, and it, and, it's, and it's like after Warhol, he calls it. And he yeah, but this is the wife. Well, I think the ties were worse. You know, <laughs> seriously, the ties is kind of where I the ties and the pens. That's where I kind of go. Yeah, really. You know, but I no, I know what you mean. There's no way, as I said, that I can speak to the operation of her mind and that I know that she wanted to. I don't know that. No, I don't think I've got a suspicion that she came on the scene with the intention of breaking up the Beatles. Absolutely not. However, as 1969 progressed and they were doing more and more of their thing, John and Yoko, and it became clear that the Beatles weren't on board for some of this stuff, I think she was more than happy to have John all to herself. 
Oh, I, of course. Maybe more so that John wanted her. And just, you know, it was much more fun to be doing these crazy things that he liked doing. And she was game. You know, let's go do a bed in. Let's go do this. Let's go do an acorn piece. Oh, God, yeah. Indulge that side of him without a doubt. I mean, now we're getting into what attracted him to her. You know, I mean, we get that. But as I said, I, I think it, it hits a point where she doesn't really care about that the greatest group of all time is going down the toilet. She, you know, she's just off on her own trip now. She's got him. Well, I think her motivation, once again, was her own fame, her own power base by being Mrs. Lennon, as it were. I think that those overrode the importance of the Beatles. I think that might be could, the same could be said for Linda in a sense that her overriding concern was getting Paul to be everything he could be and, you know, instilling confidence. And to the point, I always say that Linda to me is the ultimate good sport, you know, because she took a fair amount of abuse, um, you know, for her lack of technical ability and being in the band. I think it was a wise decision of her to become a, a member of Wings and stuff like that. I don't think she went out of her way to say, oh, I think the Beatles should get back together again. But I just also, I also think that she was willing to go along with that, where I'm not, that's like I say, where I think Yoko was not later on. You know, in other words, no, well, Beatles is done except as a business. Well, all I've got to say to you is if you have anything to say to me, say it to Melody because she'll be on the next show. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Richard, as we are uh, ending this show, there is one thing I do want to say, and I do mean it sincerely. If you're listening, happy birthday, Yoko. And it's uh, it's great to still have you with us. 87 years young. 87 years young, and may you have another 87, Yoko. Hang in there.
The Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok. I thought they'd never end Those were the days 